The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. As the graphic shows you, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's been a while. It's, it's been a month and a half or so because we did an Advent series and then Jason came for the first time in maybe a month and preached out of Philippians last week. And this is the first time we've been back in the Gospel of Mark um, since November. And honestly, it's the perfect time considering the fact that this is the first Sunday of 2021. It's the, it's the perfect time to jump back into this particular section of Mark's gospel. Why? Because in Mark's gospel, it's like we're turning a new page in Jesus's ministry. There's a shift here that we're going to feel as we, as we jump into chapter 8. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to set He's going to set their expectations. He's going to tell them the plan about what's going to come in the second half of Mark's gospel. He's going to set their expectations. Wouldn't that be nice as we think about what all 2021 could, could have in store? It, it would have been nice to have some heads up about what's going to happen in 2020. And I, I think if this year, um, if, if we could ask for anything it would probably maybe just a little bit more heads up, right? And, and Jesus is going is to do this for the disciples, and we'll see how they respond. And unfortunately, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen in 2021, um, what, what will happen this coming year, but I can tell you uh, our plan for this morning, Lord willing. So uh, what we're going to see in three verses of chapter 8, 31, 32, and 33, if I had to break it up into a nice little outline, Verse 31, I would call the necessity of the cross. In verse 32, I would call the insanity of the cross. In verse 33, I would call the generosity of the Christ. The necessity of the cross, the insanity of the cross, and the generosity of the Christ. Just in case you are visiting this morning or in case you are like me and very forgetful, uh, after not having been in this gospel for a, a while, just a couple of reminders about what Mark's gospel is. What has he been trying to do throughout this time of writing and retelling the account of Jesus Christ? Well, in verse 1-1, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that just tells us exactly what we should expect. This is an account of Jesus Christ. Uh, life and ministry and his death and his resurrection. And he goes ahead and identifies Jesus as the son of God. This is the first time that we hear the term son of God. We're going to hear it again on the, the lips of unclean spirits as Jesus cast them out. And we're going to hear it again at, at the very end in chapter 15 when Jesus breathes his last and the Roman centurion next to him says, truly, this was the son of God. That's the only time we're going to hear Jesus given the title Son of God. And, and that's important because uh, what we have seen in the passage right before ours for this morning, verse 31, is, is Jesus finally being identified by the disciples, Peter, his confession as Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. He doesn't, he doesn't say Son of God, but he does say the Christ and the Messiah. And what we've seen here 
throughout these first eight chapters is Mark is really, really interested in the identity of Jesus. All, all these miracles, all these healings, all these uh, demon possessions, all, all of these feeding of the 5,000 and all these uh, forgiveness of sins of the, the man when he, after he heals him of his paralysis, all of these things are pointing to Jesus' identity. And in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 8 that, we, that, that Jason left off, um, last time we were in Mark's gospel, we finally see this proper identification by one of the disciples, the Christ, the Messiah. But what does that mean? If, if Jesus, as he said in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If Jesus is working to bring about this kingdom in its fullness, and he commands us to repent and believe, what, what does that mean for his messiahship? We, we finally get this identification, but what must happen for this kingdom of God to come? So Jesus, up to this point, has accomplished the, the coming of the kingdom of God by calling disciples, casting out unclean spirits, healing people, forgiving sins, and most notably, preaching. He's preaching. Why do I make a point of that? Well, because he made a point of this. In, in chapter 1, just as, as a way of reminder, he had been healing all these people in this town. They were, they were coming left and right in droves, and he was healing them. But the next morning they wake up, the disciples say, everyone's looking for you. They want you to continue doing this. And, and what does Jesus say? Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus' main mission is to proclaim a message of good news, to herald the gospel. I hope that gives you some reminders about what Mark's gospel is. It's about who Jesus is. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about the message that he's preaching. And as we will see this morning... In this shift in his ministry, it's about the cross. So would you read with me our main passage in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33? And he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Would you pray with me? Lord, op open our eyes this morning. To, to see a, a familiar passage, probably, or maybe for some here, a passage that they didn't know was in Mark's gospel. Do you open our eyes to see the wondrous things that your word holds for us? And would we humble our hearts to receive this spiritual truth as the Spirit teaches us? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So this first verse, 31, we see the necessity of the cross. Uh, 
We, we just had Peter's confession of Jesus' identity. This is God's man, his chosen one. That's, that's what when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying that you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that was promised for so long. But what we're going to see here in this passage today is that while Peter's embracing of Jesus as the Christ uh, doesn't necessarily mean Peter's embrace of Jesus' plan as the Messiah. See, what, what Peter shows us is that we, we've all got our preconceptions. We've all got our biases as to who Jesus is. When we see Jesus as the Christ, the one who will make all things right, that brings up certain images in, in each of our heads, Right? We begin to construct a sort of plan as to how Jesus should proceed. Because when, when we put our hope in him, we say, well, these are the issues, and these are the way things should be, and so Jesus is going to do these things. He'll certainly go about it this way, and this is clearly the biggest problem, and he'll, ta- he'll tackle that one first. But there is great danger in, conv- in confessing Jesus as my Messiah and my story without first confessing him as God's Messiah and God's story. It's really important. and It's becoming more and more clear as we move throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus is not the Messiah of Peter's great expectations. Here, Peter is going to make the mistake that many of us have made, many more will make in the future, the mistake of seeing Jesus as the Messiah of our great expectations instead of God's great revelation. And that is nothing short of idolatry. And it's so easy to do this, right? To see Jesus through our expectations, our biases, placing our desires on him before we let him correct our desires. The psalmist in in Psalm 37 writes this, this simple little truth, delight yourself in the Lord, talking about our desires. And he will give you the desires of your heart. So what's the first step in that pattern? It's to delight yourself in the Lord. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. We need Jesus, our Messiah, to set our expectations, to tell us what is good and what is desirable before we place our desires upon him. So when we come to this text, when we come to any text of scripture, we have to ask good questions. And here, the good question is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? If Peter knows him as the Christ, as the Messiah, God's man, what kind of man is he going to be? The kingdom has come near, and this is the man to carry out God's plan. But what's the plan? And this is what Jesus teaches him. That, that's that's what, how, how our passage starts. And he began to teach them. Because you can see the shift in Jesus' ministry, interestingly enough, by just following the boats. What do I mean by that? Uh, You may or may not have noticed that we've been on voyage after voyage with Jesus and the disciples since chapter 3. Chapter 3, he tells his disciples, get the boat ready because I'm about to teach these people and they're probably going to freak out a little bit and I may need to make a quick escape. And after that, we've seen Jesus over and over again use the boat as a teaching platform, as a safety mechanism, 
as a vehicle for solitude. And the last time that Jesus set sail with his disciples was earlier in chapter 8. Verse 13, after the Pharisees demand a sign from heaven, Jesus departs there by boat, and we won't see a boat appear again in Mark's gospel. Why is that? Because Jesus is now on the way. What does that mean? Well, we're not going to get on. We're not going to get much into it this morning about what the what the way is. We'll see it pop up again and again through the rest of Mark's gospel. Jesus, um, Jesus is on the way by land to Jerusalem, and we we know this in chapter ten, verse thirty-two. We're going to see uh, Mark write, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them on the way, on the road. It's like in Luke 9, 51, a famous verse, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. There is a definitive marking at this point in Mark's gospel where Jesus, where he had been doing a certain kind of ministry, he now takes a shift and his focus is completely headed towards the cross. That's this moment in Mark's gospel. So what Jesus is going to teach in this passage this morning is, is, is different. It's not opposed to what's come before, but it is different. Um, the only mention before this is back in chapter 2, verse 20, when Jesus kind of enigmatically says that the bridegroom will be taken away and there will be no uh, feasting in that day, but fasting. Because up to this point, Jesus has said, repent and believe. He, he says a lot, follow me. He says, uh, when, as he goes out preaching in the synagogues, we don't get a lot of the content of his sermons in, in Mark's gospel. But if you think about something like Luke 4, when he's preaching in Nazareth, what is his message? It's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said back in chapter 2, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. He prophesied that he is the new wine. He's bringing in the new wine. He's breaking the yoke of the Pharisees' overbearing Sabbath laws. He's binding the strong man of Satan. He teaches these wonderful parables about the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, we get to chapter 8, verse 31. There's a difference in his tone. The son of man must suffer. Obviously, this catches Peter off guard. Jesus, you said to repent and believe in in the gospel, the good news. This doesn't sound like good news. We've seen the disciples struggle to understand. Struggle again and again. And, 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 and now that they have an accurate confession of Jesus' identity, aren't things going to be different? They get it now, right? Not really. We're, we're going to see them struggle for the rest of Mark's gospel of this truth, that the Son of Man must suffer. Mark 9 Verses 9 and 10. As they're coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, the transfiguration, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, but they were 
questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're still questioning. They're still struggling to understand. Later on in Mark 9, 30 to 32, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying a lot of the same things. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is, this is a pattern, and I, I want to point this out. Uh, I want to point this out because I think it's, it's going to be so helpful as we move through the rest of Mark's gospel. Every time Jesus teaches about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, the next scene features the disciples seeking personal greatness. Jesus' response is always this, that the wisdom of God in the cross is the folly of man. It's foolishness to the man's eyes. And here's the pattern. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. The disciples respond with worldly wisdom. Jesus teaches a kingdom of God ethic of greatness. He teaches them. And then he gives them the example of himself. In Mark 9, we won't turn to it, but there's that prediction that we just read in, in verses 30 to 32. And what do the disciples do in response? They start arguing about who's the greatest among them. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. And they start arguing about that. So what does Jesus teach them? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And what's the example he gives them? He welcomes a small child in his arms a despised one of their society. In Mark 10, he makes the same prediction of his death and resurrection. And what do the, what do the disciples respond with? Well, two of them start arguing. Can you grant to us one to sit at your right and one to sit at your left? The very next thing they do, arguing over who's going to sit at the right and left. And Jesus teaches this. This is his kingdom of God ethic. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives them his kingly example. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, this new teaching that Jesus has here in verse 31 for the disciples, it catches them off guard. And they're not going to get it for a long time. They're not going to get it, really. Uh, I talked to Conrad this week, and he said, I just don't think they get it until uh, Acts chapter 2. I said, Conrad, I think you're right. Because these things are interpreted and illuminated by the Spirit of God. And they are learning them, but they won't truly know them until the Spirit does his work. The content of this teaching is what I'm calling the necessity of the cross, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. What does it mean, must suffer? It's this little Greek particle, day, that means it is necessary. And, And Mark uses it over and over again to talk about certain things. Elijah must come first. Um... When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. 
uh, chapter 13, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Um, and Peter uses it to his uh, demise. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, Jesus. These are necessary events. They have to happen. They must take place because they have been decreed by God. They are part of his sovereign plan. They are part of his will. And they are, as Mark is going to say, written. They are written. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It is written of the Son of Man. In chapter 14, verse 21, for the Son of Man, Jesus is most loved title for himself, goes as is written of him. These things are necessary. They must take place because they are written in God's words. They are decreed by God himself. But where is this written? And why did the disciples not get this? Right? That's, that's a huge question. Uh, we read one instance this morning in Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's a a prophecy of the chief cornerstone, the Messiah, the Christ, being rejected. This this, uh, language of the suffering of God's chosen one is written all over Isaiah 53. We could read the whole passage and you would see it over and over again pierce for our transgressions and language such as that. But the, the passage I want to look at this morning is Daniel chapter 7 because of how Jesus introduces the, his sufferings. He says the son of man must suffer. And any time you hear the word son of man, I want you to think in your head, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7. You see, in Daniel chapter 7, to set the context, there's this crazy vision of these four beasts. The first three kind of, they, they take the appearance of animals, and they're representative of kingdoms of the world. And the fourth beast is, is like nothing they've ever seen before. It has a terrifying image. In this fourth beast, we, we read about in, chap, in uh, chapter 7, verse 23, thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down, break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, this is part of his vision that came earlier, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given, the saints of the Most High shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. And to be consumed and destroyed to the end, in the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. 
to, to get a, a good feel of what's going on here, you'd really have to read the entire chapter of Daniel 7. But there are these four kingdoms, the fourth being the greatest and the most powerful. And then comes this one, a son of man. And he is the one given dominion and conquers this fourth and great kingdom. But it's not until what we read that for a time, the saints, the people of God, are given into their hands. We see here in Daniel 7, prophesied suffering for God's chosen one and his people. And after that comes dominion, everlasting dominion. In this first verse, verse 31, Jesus lets the disciples know what to expect in the coming days. And he does this because he needs them to understand the necessity of the cross in accordance to what is written in God's word. One commentator says it this way, Jesus does not explain his mission to his disciples simply to predict future events, but to verify for his disciples that what is about to happen fulfills God's plan. It was not their plan. And they're going to struggle with it. But what Jesus is doing graciously here is just, this is what's written. This is what, this what, is what must happen. I'm, I'm trying to prepare you. That's the necessity of the cross. But the insanity of the cross we see in verse 32. It starts with this little phrase, and he said this plainly. Plainly. He, he did not speak in parables, as he did before, right? He didn't beat around the bush, but he stated these things openly, with clarity and boldness. And Jesus was, was speaking to the crowds in parables, and then he would explain things privately to his disciples. So they're used to receiving some insider information, but this word plainly only appears in Mark's gospel at this moment in verse 32. And it's supposed to tell us to hear the change in Jesus's tone, how he's teaching and what he's teaching about. There is a shift and there is no confusion as to what he's saying. There should be no confusing, confusion, but Here's what Peter does in response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, the same one who just confessed Jesus as the Christ. You would think if Peter really meant that, then he would trust what Jesus was saying, right? This is, this is the same guy. Just said, Jesus, you are... The Messiah, and yet here he is attempting to correct the Christ. The student moves to become the master. The disciple jumps from follower to line leader. The clay seeks to shape the potter. And shape is a soft word there, because what the word is, is rebuke. The same word for what Jesus does to the unclean spirits to silence them. For Peter to have the guts to rebuke the anointed one shows just how strong of a reaction he had to what Jesus just said about his upcoming suffering. Knowing what we know of Peter, I'm almost certain that Jesus had hardly finished his sentence before Peter rushed over there and took him to the side. Hey, hey, Jesus, come on. You're scaring the guys. God forbid those things to happen to you. Never. 
And it's funny how things always happen so quickly with Peter. The next moment after confessing Jesus as Messiah, he rebukes him. They're headed to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus says, look, you guys, I'm just going to tell you, you're all going to fall away. You know, strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. It's, it's prophesied that you're going to fall away. Peter, he has none of it. Over my dead body. But before that chapter is over, he's going to deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He's quick to respond. And we don't, we don't get a, an exact recording of what Peter says to Jesus in his rebuke, especially in Mark. But we do get a small taste of it in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord. This is a phrase used in scriptures only twice. Here and once in Hebrews 8, verse 12. And that word, far be it, is this word in merciful in Hebrews 8. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Merciful. Wait, is Peter saying the same thing that Jesus cried out in the garden? When, when he cries out, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I, I don't think that this is the same thing. And remember how Jesus finished that request? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But well, compare that to what Peter is saying, this shall never happen to you. Never. Jesus, the son of God, in the garden, he shows that he does not long for the pain of the cross, but he ultimately longs for the plan of the Father. Peter's reaction shows pretty clearly that his mind is made up. He is not currently open to this unexpected path that Jesus must walk. God forbid it. That, that's what Peter says, but Jesus is trying to tell him God won't forbid this. In fact, he's the very one behind it. And in Matthew 16, 22, especially in the ESV, you might have this footnote that it could be translated, Lord, have mercy on you, Jesus. Jesus says, I must suffer. Peter says, Lord, have mercy on you. And Jesus is trying to tell Peter, you don't get it. He, he has mercy on you. It's when the plan of God contains difficulty and suffering and we cry out as we should, Lord, have mercy, it would help to keep in mind that this suffering might just be the way God is showing you mercy. Trials, as, as James will go on to write, are so often for our spiritual benefit. And, and what Jesus is trying to tell Peter here is, you don't want to stop this from happening because the result is your salvation. If Peter thought he knew better than Jesus, that tells us he hasn't quite grasped the depth of his own need for Christ. Peter sees the need for the Messiah to conquer the enemies out there, but he neglects the greater need for Christ to save him from the sinful self in here. That's what the cross is about. You see, Peter's and the, the disciples' expectations of the Messiah was to save them from Rome, maybe, maybe we won't have to pay taxes anymore. 
Maybe we'll get our own land back, right? Everlasting, like, like 2 Samuel 7 promises, the son of David to rule on the throne forever. That's what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, Jesus brings out this part of suffering and, and death. And I, I doubt they even heard the fact that he said, and three days later, I'll rise again. I, I, don't, I think Peter probably reacted so quickly that that just blew right past him. See, to these disciples, the cross is insanity. It doesn't make any sense in accordance with their conception of the Messiah. Jesus preaches the necessity of the cross, and the disciples respond. Peter rebukes because of the insanity of the cross. In this last verse, 33, we see the generosity of the Christ. I love this little part that Mark wisely slips in here. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter. I I need that there. I, I need this little phrase, but turning and seeing his disciples, because it tells me that it's not just Peter, right? Jesus turns and he sees the rest of the disciples before rebuking the one crazy enough to object to him out loud. But why does he do that? Because they were all thinking the same thing. And it's so, it's so easy for us to take this passage and to read it and to say, man, Peter, what an idiot. Without turning to examine our own reactions to, to the difficult teachings of Jesus that we encounter as we move through God's word. Of course they were all thinking it. Jesus, he's already proven himself able to discern the thoughts of men, perceiving in his spirit. He knows that they're thinking the same thing. And when he returns the rebuke back to Peter, he does so loudly enough for the other disciples to hear. And I think we're supposed to hear it this morning too. It's not just Peter. It's the rest of the disciples. It's James. It's John. It's me. It's you. We hear the word of God, specifically the passages that are hard to swallow, and we try to reason with them using, using the wisdom of man. Surely God doesn't mean that. There's no God would say, do, ask. What's surprising unexpected, seemingly foolish part of God's will have we been rebuking him for? Probably under your breath or just in your heart. Or maybe you're as bold as Peter and you push back out loud. But either way, most of us at some point are rejecting God's will because it would be so very uncomfortable for us to do this, to do that, because it doesn't line up with the plan that we have in mind for ourselves or our families. No doubt Peter is thinking, it doesn't have to be this way, Jesus. Considering all that they've been through together, not only what Jesus has taught, but also what he has done, the wisdom of man would find Jesus' words not just surprising, but borderline incomprehensible, how does it make any sense? This Messiah who has shown his power and his authority 
all throughout the gospel of Mark, how could someone ever get the upper hand on him? See, Mark's gospel, the first half, has so many accounts that, by human standards, boast of Jesus' power. But the second half of Mark's gospel will more than challenge our human understanding of power and greatness. That's one of the reasons why Jesus prepares his disciples now by speaking plainly to them. And early on, Jesus is graciously trying to ease them into seeing the cross as the display of God's power. One commentator writes helpfully, Paul said that the cross was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Peter is the first to stumble over the offense of a suffering Messiah. He won't be the last. So Peter obviously believes that Jesus, as the Messiah, will overthrow their enemies, establish his throne in accordance with the Lord's covenant. And how could that have anything to do with his crucifixion? But if we look later in Scripture, Paul doesn't see the incongruity here. In Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15, he writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In this verse here, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Paul, in providing evidence of Christ's triumph over the rulers and authorities, points to the cross. This is what Peter can't imagine, a Christ who conquers by a cross. And our our disagreements and negative reactions to God's words are, at best, our own faulty wisdom in need of spiritual correction. But at worst, they represent our intentional opposition to God's will. That is a very serious thing, which is why Jesus very seriously says this to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. That's pretty harsh. I know Peter's making a pretty big mistake, but Satan? What does Jesus mean by this? And wouldn't that be a crazy plot twist if Peter actually was the same person as the serpent in the garden, right? Kind of like a, you know, Darth Vader, Luke's father kind of moment in the Gospels. But if I spoiled that for you, it's been decades. So uh, it is not that crazy of a plot twist. That's not what Jesus is saying. Peter is not actually the person of Satan. Well, thus far, Mark has written about Satan three different times. Once during his temptation, once when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by Satan's power, and most recently in the parable of the sower. And what does Satan do there? Satan is the one who takes away the seed as Jesus scatters uh, the seed of his word, right? And here in our passage, in Mark's final mention of Satan, we're not going to see the name appear again. This is the role that Peter's playing. Jesus has scattered the seed of his word, of God's word, and and he did so plainly. Peter immediately tries to take it away. No, 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 no. Never will that happen. He is saying, 
Jesus is saying that Peter's mindset reflects that of God's adversary, the devil. Just as in the wilderness, Satan attempted to derail Jesus from his ministry, Peter attempts to do so here, steering Jesus away from the cross. Here's where we can all be be warned a little bit, right? It's possible to be close to Jesus, to, to know him as the Christ, the Messiah, to enjoy being around his wonderful ministry and the community of faith, to love the good things that we receive from him, and yet still be so against the true things of God. To be more of a son of the devil instead of a son of God. This is what we see in John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. Starting in verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. You can tell whose child you are by your reaction to the word. The Pharisees are sons of Satan because they reject the word of God. Their mindset and worldview reflect something other than God's and you have to love the irony here. The Pharisees will verify Satan as their father when they put Jesus on the cross. And Jesus will verify God as his, as his father as he allows them to do so. This, that's the difference. Jesus' mindset is one of humility and service to God and his will. That's why it's opposite to Satan's. The satanic mindset that Peter is uh, displaying here is one of pride, exploitation, and self-glorification. This last section I called the generosity of Christ. But some of you might be thinking, Jesus doesn't sound very generous. Get behind me, Satan. We we must remember that this is Jesus' response to Peter's temptation, right? His strong reaction shows his strong resolve to follow the Spirit's leading even when the Spirit is leading him to his own death. Personally, if I'm about to go do something that I don't want to do, and someone meets me along the way and says, you shouldn't do that, I'm not going to do it. Like, I already don't want to do it. I'm receiving pushback because of it. You better believe I'm out of there. But what does Jesus do? Get behind me, Satan is his immediate response here as he flees the temptation and continues on his way to Jerusalem. And he does so by offering, at the same time, correction 
for the benefit of the very one who tempted him. He offers him spiritual correction. That is a generous savior. And what is this generous correction that Christ offers? Set your mind on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of God. See, Peter had his mind on the things of man. He had created an idol out of the Christ. He had fashioned the Messiah in his own image, just as we do when we construct our futures according to the ideals that we have in our own minds, following our own appetites. Jesus says the correction is to set your mind on the things of God. If you want to know what that phrase means, I challenge you to just read through the book of Philippians and see how many times this appears uh, here's, here's a mindset on earthly things in Philippians 3, 17 to 19. Brothers, join in, me, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. following our desires, our bellies, our appetites. That's the things of man. They are enemies of God. But what are the things of God? Paul tells us again in Philippians chapter 2 this time. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That is what it looks like to have your mind set on the things of God, to humble yourself and to submit to his will. How are we supposed to do this? In verse 5, it said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How are we supposed to have a mind like this? By being in Christ. He is the one who gives us this mind. He is the one who enables us to do this. By the giving of his spirit, we can have this mind. So thank God for Christ's rebuke of our sinful desires. A generous savior. What if he were to give in to our ideas of what the Messiah should be like? What a disaster that would be. He would never have come. So Christmas, forget that. There would be no reason for the incarnation if God ruled as men would have him rule. 
He could do everything Peter wanted him to do from his heavenly throne. And the only problem there is that Peter, or any of us for that matter, wouldn't be able to enjoy Christ's eternal kingdom unless he goes to the cross. Be careful what we wish for. The cross is the culmination of God's will. The cross is the confrontation of man's will. And what if 2021, a new year, came with a new mindset? I I don't know how you are on making New Year's resolutions, um, but I think everybody kind of, to some degree, takes account of what they want to accomplish in this new year. It's just kind of natural to think that way. How we want to change, how we want to grow, what kind of goals we want to set our minds on or maybe try to pick up the same goals that we failed on last year. But what would it look like in 2021 if God's people, we as disciples, set our minds on the things of God instead of the things of man? I pray that 2021 is a year of great reversals for us where we exchange our faulty man-centered ideals of greatness and power for God's power and wisdom that we see most prominently displayed in the cross of Christ. May our prayer for 2021 not be the things of man, which is my will be done, but the things of God, which is thy will be done. Would you pray with me? God, honestly, what a surprising passage. It took the disciples by surprise, caught them off guard. Also catches me off guard to hear Peter, a hero of the faith, struggle so much with your plan, with God's plan. But God, if we really examine our hearts, we understand that we are susceptible to the same exact problems, when your plan for our lives is difficult and it doesn't match up with what we want. And we try to talk you out of it, not realizing you are showing us your great mercy by your sovereign wisdom. God, help us see the wisdom of God as true wisdom and not fall into the trap of seeing the wisdom of man as true wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open to being molded and transformed and shaped as we walk into this new year. Who knows what the plan is? Only you. Make us willing to walk in that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.